Check one, two to all passengers and crew. The rails are getting slippery as we steam on through this stretch of the line. This is all still new. More losses upon losses. What's an investor to do when nothing is working like it worked before? When we could just throw money, make it rain on the floor. Do the Fang Thang, Hang Sang, NVIDIA, or Ford, Bitcoin, Solana, or those apes that look bored. The everything rallies. They were so much fun until the Fed crashed the party and took away the rum. And the punch ain't so nice without all that spice. When inflation is raging from nation to nation and war rages on without cessation, the paradigm has changed. The charts are a mess. It's time to recalibrate on the Investopedia Express. Make that four weeks in a row of more losses for major U.S. averages. Rallies have been fading and sell-offs accelerating as investors steer clear of risk. Treasury yields keep climbing higher, and two back-to-back U.S. inflation reports last week showed sharply rising prices for producers and consumers. Consumer prices rose 8.5% from a year ago, the highest level in 41 years. Inside the stock market, the flight to safety continues. The S&P is now down 7.8% year-to-date, while the energy sector is up 44%. Utilities are up 6.3% and consumer staples are up 2.5%. Nearly 40% of all NASDAQ stocks are down 50% or more from their 52-week highs, while only 12% are 50% or more above their 52-week lows. That, my friends, is pretty bad breath. And someone rolled down the window because sentiment stinks. According to Bank of America's latest fund manager survey, global growth optimism is at its lowest level on record. Bullish individual investor sentiment, as measured by the American Association of Individual Investors, is at its lowest point since September of 1992. When everyone's fearful, it usually pays to be greedy. But something about this market and the lack of conviction is making that really hard right now. Outside the U.S. stock market and inside the private markets, deal flow is slowing. According to PitchBook, U.S. venture capital investments hit $70.7 billion in the first quarter of 2022. That's down from $95.4 billion from the previous quarter and down $77 billion year over year. Mega deals, those above $100 million, slowed to $36.6 billion from $58.1 billion the prior quarter. And globally, venture capital funding also fell quarter over quarter to $143.9 billion, according to CB Insights. Company valuations are still holding firm, which is a hopeful sign, but private companies and their backers don't want to go anywhere near the public markets anytime soon. The Renaissance IPO ETF, ticker IPO, which holds some of the largest publicly traded companies that have IPO'd in the past few years, like Uber, CrowdStrike, and Snowflake, is down nearly 30% this year. While dealmaking may be in a slump, the hunt for talent among global investment banks remains red hot. According to Wall Street Oasis, the top global investment banks boosted intern pay by 37% for the current internship season from a year earlier. Interns are earning median salaries of $10,000 a month, and those internships can last 10 to 12 weeks. It sure beats waiting tables. Hedge funds, high-frequency and proprietary trading firms, and investment banks are paying the most, so expect to see a lot more golf fests in Midtown Manhattan, Greenwich, Connecticut, Canary Wharf, London, and Mountain View, California. In case you missed it last week, Elon Musk served up a whopper of a business news story that had all the bells ringing here at Investopedia. Musk sent a letter to Twitter's chairman and filed with the SEC to offer $43 billion in cash to buy the social media platform outright and take it private. As you recall, Musk disclosed a 9.2% stake in Twitter a couple weeks ago, a stake he's been building since January. He was offered a board seat and then he turned it down earlier last week, saying he did not have faith in the company's management team to change Twitter's strategy and commit to making it an open source platform that will uphold free speech 
and be open to anyone. Late Wednesday, he made the all-in cash offer of $43 billion to buy Twitter outright, saying it was, quote, his best and final offer for the company. The $43 billion valued each share at $54.20, an 18% premium to where shares of Twitter were trading earlier in the week. It was a 54% premium to where shares of Twitter were trading at the beginning of the year when Musk started his buying spree. And that $54.20 number kind of sounds eerily reminiscent of the $420 per share that Musk tweeted he wanted to take Tesla private for back in 2018. You all remember the famous funding secured tweets Musk was sending in between puffs of sticky smoke, right? Twitter's board huddled to consider the $43 billion offer, which no one ever thought it would accept. While the all-cash offer is a premium to where shares of Twitter are trading and were trading at the beginning of the year, shares of the social media company traded north of $70 per share as recently as last July. Saudi Arabia's Prince Alouid bin Talal, one of Twitter's largest shareholders with a 5% stake, rejected Musk's bid outright, saying the deal doesn't come close to the intrinsic value of the company. Then Vanguard, one of Twitter's largest institutional shareholders, raised its stake in the company to more than 10%, trumping Musk's 9.2% stake, making it the top shareholder. Musk warned that if Twitter's board did not accept his offer, he'd be forced to reconsider his position as a shareholder. In other words, he might sell his stake and walk away. Keep in mind, he'll likely net a mighty gain if he does, but he'd be sticking his finger in the eye of all Twitter shareholders because dumping 9.2% stake of Twitter shares back onto the market will create a mighty splash, potentially sinking the vulnerable stock to well below it was before Musk started gobbling up shares. Who would have thought Musk would play corporate raider, especially on a company whose platform he loves to use to his own ends? He's got 82 million followers that like his every move. But just in case Musk doesn't run away and attempts a hostile takeover of the company by buying up more shares, Twitter's board got defensive on Friday. Real defensive. It adopted a so-called poison pill, otherwise known as a limited duration shareholder rights plan that would kick in if an entity, person, or group acquires beneficial ownership of 15% or more of Twitter's outstanding common stock in a transaction not approved by the board. Each right, according to Twitter's filing with the SEC, will entitle its holder to purchase at the then-current exercise price additional shares of common stock having a then-current market value of twice the exercise price of the right. In other words, shareholders will be allowed to purchase shares of Twitter at a steep discount, which would dilute the value of Musk shares if he tries to acquire 15% or more of the company. We're going to get into poison pills more in terminology time later in the show, but in just a few days, Elon Musk has turned all eyes on himself, and in the process, he has millions of people pouring into Investopedia's glossary of financial terms, looking up everything from corporate raider to hostile takeover and poison pill to Twitter's top shareholders. Thanks, Elon. We appreciate the traffic. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead. Earnings season really picks up steam this week with reports from more banks, including Bank of America, the Bank of New York Mellon, and Charles Schwab on Monday. On Tuesday, we'll hear from Johnson & Johnson, Netflix and IBM, among others. Tesla, Procter & Gamble, and NASDAQ report on Wednesday, while AT&T and Verizon report on Thursday and Friday, respectively. Last week, we got mixed insights into bank earnings, with reports from J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and Morgan Stanley. The results were mixed, with J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo recording quarterly profit declines, while Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley beat estimates. J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo have a lot of exposure to U.S. consumers, and J.P. Morgan in particular wrote down its Russia-related losses to the tune of $524 million. 
More updates on the state of the U.S. housing market will arrive this week with the release of March housing starts and existing home sales by the U.S. Census Bureau and the National Association of Realtors. Housing starts surge in February, climbing 6.8%, but rising interest rates are cooling down the red-hot housing sector. Existing homes fell 7% on an annualized basis in February to $6 million, and they are projected to have fallen another $5.8 million last month. The average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage rose to 5.13% last week, the highest rate in over three years. On Monday, China will release GDP growth figures for the first quarter of 2022. Estimates call for a 0.6% increase from the past quarter and an annual gain of 4.4%. The Chinese economy is likely to experience a slowdown due to COVID-19 lockdowns in Shanghai and other major cities, which are impacting supply chains and exports. Still, China's GDP is forecasted to expand by 5.1% in 2022, following an 8.1% expansion in 2021. China's economy is slowing, but so is the United States. According to the latest projections from the conference board, U.S. GDP will slow to 3% in 2022, down from 5.7% in 2021. In 2023, U.S. GDP is projected to fall to 2.2%. It's a slowdown, folks. No two ways about it. The question is, is whether we slow all the way into a recession. Tis the season here in the United States for college acceptances and decisions, and while some may not think this is an investment decision, it actually is. The cost of a four-year state university easily tops $100,000 these days, which feels like a bargain compared to four-year private colleges where the all-in price tag could easily hit $350,000. If you have a few kids, double, triple, or quadruple that. If you're paying for it on your own or taking loans, the cost of college may be one of the biggest loans you'll ever take, and it can also be one of the biggest investments you'll ever make in yourself or your child. Full disclosure, I'm going through this process right now with my 17-year-old daughter. We are fortunate. She has good schools who honor, and we've been able to save for this event. But for millions of families and teenagers, the price we pay for college can have profound implications on their financial health that can last for years. Ron Lieber has studied the cost of college deeper than most people have ever ventured to explore. He is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times. He's got a few bestsellers on the New York Times list, including The Price You Pay for College, a tremendous book that I'm so glad glad we read as a family as we enter this experience. And Ron is our very special guest on The Express this week. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me. I don't relish the spot that you're in, but I imagine I will be deep in it in approximately 24 months when our sophomore hits that stage of life. How are you doing? We are doing okay. And mostly because our daughter is so level-headed and been so cool about it that it's been a uh, made it an easier ride for us. And a couple of the schools that she really wanted, she actually got. So we're in that conversation with many of them right now about how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to pay for it? Should we... What should we pay? So all of those questions are coming up. But and and you say this, and I've heard you say this before. College doesn't make your kid. Your kid really turns into the person that they're going to be, and the college does help them. And the friends that they make along the way are so important to that. But I want to get into the some of the key tenets of your book. And as you know, and you point out, college costs have gone up astronomically, Ron, in the past twenty years. But the value of a four-year education hasn't necessarily. What's behind the rising costs first, and then we'll talk about value. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we should talk about costs and we should talk about price. When we talk about costs, I think about the costs that the colleges have to pay to keep the lights on and to provide whatever experience that you think it is that you're paying for. The price is a couple of things. The price could be the list price, which the colleges often refer to and you can search for under the phrase cost of attendance, right? So, 
you know, University of Wisconsin-Madison cost of attendance, right? And what you'll get there is the list price, the rack rate for tuition and room and board and fees and everything that you might pay, even an estimate of travel costs, right? So that's the list price. But then there's the net price. And there's almost as many different net prices as there are prices for seats on an airplane. Um, And that is a more complicated thing to predict and to figure. Right. So when you say in your book, there's the retail price or the, the list price, the sticker price that we all see, but that's just the very beginning of the financial journey that families go on when they're getting ready to send their kid to college and making this decision. What are the major steps as we start to unpack all that on that journey? For starters, there are two different, really three different kinds of colleges that we're talking about if we exclude for-profits. And there's two different ways to get a discount, you know, subcategories in each, right? But they're public universities and colleges, which are subsidized by the state and are usually, but not always, much cheaper in your state than a private college would be. And then there's private colleges and universities, which, you know, at the rack rate can be up to three times as much as uh, whatever your flagship state university costs, maybe four in some of the cheaper states. But there's two ways you can get a discount, right? You can get a discount It's my word for financial aid. It's really just a discount, though. You can get a discount based on your ability to pay or what the college or the federal government perceives as your ability to pay. That's what happens when you fill out the FAFSA form or that CSS profile form where they ask you a bunch of personal questions about your income and your assets. You can get a discount according to your financial situation, or you can get a discount according to so-called merit aid which is a big, complicated, messy, unpredictable thing where admissions officers, not financial aid officers, admissions officers throw discounts your way on the basis of however it is they've scored your meritoriousness and where you might rank in the class of admitted students, um, but also based on dozens of algorithmic measures you know, in these computer programs that they rent out from consulting firms, right? And so I, you know, the process has to begin with an understanding of the system that you're tossing yourself into. And then there's a whole bunch other questions you need to ask yourself before you begin to shop, or at least before you make a decision. Right. So merit aid, that can be a presidential scholarship, that can be some name scholarship, or there's a variety of them out there. But a lot of folks, when they're looking at sending their kid to college or kids who are looking to get themselves into college may not be aware of all that. But there is a long list and there's money out there to be found if you know where to look. How do you even begin to look for some of these merit-based scholarships or aid, as we call it? You know, I wish I could give people like a predictive formula, but it's kind of hard. Now, I should say there is one place to look where there is some decent information. It's something called the common data set, which is what all these schools use to kind of consolidate hundreds of bits of really interesting statistical data um, so that they can throw it all at U.S. News and the other places that rank the schools. And just about all of them post this in public, but they don't make an issue of it. Um, They don't put it on the admissions office page because they know that if you look carefully at section H2 and H2A, you will get a good sense of what kind of merit aid they offer on average and to what percentage of the class. And once you know that, you know if your package is below average or above average and how much negotiating. Oops, I said the word 
you're not negotiating, yeah, right? They negotiate. don't want to. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't. They don't want to see themselves, and they don't want you seeing them as used car dealers. You can appeal. You can't negotiate. No negotiating. You can appeal. That's the word. You can appeal. You know, if you get in and you get an offer late in the game, and you know that it's a below average offer, and so the common data set useful not just for this merit aid stuff. But also for all sorts of other statistical information that might tell you more than a little about some things that you want to know about the place. And then, Ron, there are some schools, especially some private universities and colleges, that don't offer merit aid at all. Why don't they? And we're talking about some of the more elite private institutions here in the Northeast, but there's some out on the West Coast and all over the country. Yeah. So the way to think about this is a sort of marketplace. You only offer merit aid if you have to. And there's a lot of different reasons why you might have to, but when I was reporting the price you pay for college, you know, I knew I couldn't go everywhere and do everything. You know, there were a couple thousand undergraduate institutions or whatever it is. I forget the number. I tried to think about who my audience was and what they cared about. And as much ink that gets spilled, you know, over Ivy League and roughly equivalent schools. You know, people kind of knew enough about those places and those schools are all incredibly wealthy, right? And, you know, they can meet the full financial need of anybody they admit. What I was interested in was the place in the market, the, the, the spot, the spots in the marketplace where parents who had the ability to pay full price increasingly were lacking the willingness to do so. Right. Because if you're a school and you're on the other end of that, that's the point at which you have to discount. There's a terrific story that appeared, I believe it was the Washington Monthly, I think it was 2013. The headline to search for is Merit Aid Madness. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. Just a terrific story about how the Merit Aid dominoes fell over time in Ohio, which is a really interesting case study where a small school that was really struggling just started throwing money around. And slowly but surely up the food chain, everybody had to respond competitively as the lower schools picked off students that used to go to the schools higher up. And the schools that were higher up were like, well, we can either keep losing good students or we can get in the game, start throwing money around too. And eventually every private college and university in the state sort of fell in line and had to do it. And now Oberlin College, which is sort of at the top of the food chain in that state, gives $10,000 to everybody right off the bat. It's sort of amazing that this has happened, right? So you have to think about it as a sort of marketplace. And just because schools are giving money to everybody doesn't make it a bad school. You know, a school's going to be bad for you or it's not going to be bad for you in terms of its fit. It's going to be bad for you in terms of value, or it's not going to be bad for you in terms of value. Now, how to figure out whether that's true is is a question that doesn't have as much to do with money as it does to do with figuring out why you're going to college in the first place, um, which is not not a rhetorical question. Not at all. And I think it's become an even more important question over the last couple of years. The pandemic has definitely dislocated our relationship with the way we used to do things, whether that's I go every get up every day, I take the train, I go to the office, I come home, I sit down and I have dinner and that's it. Or no, I'm not going to the office anymore. Or I don't know if I want to invest $350,000 or $100,000 in a four-year college for myself, my kid, whatever, because the world has changed. What has the last couple of years done to the entire psyche and the entire dynamic of paying for college? 
there are really three reasons to go to college. And it all kind of starts from there, right? You go to college for the learning, to have your mind grown and your mind blown by, you know, real grownups with experience rearranging the way people think in the classroom. So you go to college for the learning. That's number one. Number two, you go to college for the kinship, right? To find your people, the people who you never could have imagined having existed in the world, the people you couldn't or just didn't find in your hometown. And you go to college, you seek out those people, they change your life, they pick you up and they carry you through life for decades and decades and decades, right? Or maybe it's a mentor, not not a peer who can do that too. And then you go to college for the credential. And maybe that's a credential that vaults you a couple places up the social class ladder into a place of relative economic security that maybe your parent or parents hadn't managed to achieve through no fault of their own. Or maybe you're looking for the credential that opens doors to rooms that you or your family and your status and your privilege never could have imagined getting you into in the first place without that usually pretty fancy or very specific credential. So those are the reasons to go to college. So the pandemic happens and I'm thinking to myself, oh man, is this going to turn out to be right? But then by a couple months in, I was like, oh, we're getting a real world test of this. And September came around, September 2020. And wouldn't you know it, the learning Like it was all gone in April or May, you know, through no fault of the schools, right? They weren't prepared to teach online, um, or most of them, at least. Some of them had been doing it for a long time, right? So the learning had like practically gone to zero. The kinship was almost entirely gone because people weren't together anymore and you weren't, you know, going to office hours or seeing faculty on campus. So the only thing left was this credential that you know, you'd get this PDF of a degree over email or they'd send you the sheepskin, you know, via USPS. And yet, and yet, everyone went flocking back to campus in September of 2020. The schools had the nerve, the gall to charge full price in almost every instance for a deeply compromised experience that they knew would sicken the 19-year-olds and absolutely positively kill people in the community when, you know, inevitably a whole bunch of people got the virus and spread it before there was a vaccine. And yet, and yet, huge numbers of people flocked back for that. So that, to me, was evidence that college is for so many kids in like the, you know, median in roughly medium household income category and above had become an not just like a rite of passage, but almost a sort of entitlement. People couldn't really figure out what else to do other than go back. And they missed the kinship and they missed the learning so much that they were willing to go back and pay full price because what else were they going to do? Now that itself is not a rhetorical question, right? But we don't really have alternatives that people trust right now. So, you know, whether and how those could come into existence is like a different 30-minute conversation. But I think my theory of the case turned out to be right, right? There are three reasons people go. If you take away two of them, people are going to be sad, and then they're going to go back and keep paying for it. Let's get back to the brass tacks of actually paying for it. So what are the questions that parents and prospective students should be asking the universities and colleges that have accepted them and they're considering that offer? We're in that window now where 
Those kids, those seniors have to make a decision. What are those big questions? There's a few of them that are so key that you think are the most important ones they should be asking in order to determine, A, is this the right place, which is somewhat of a feel, and B, is this going to be worth it? I think it starts with those three things that we were talking about before. Are you going for the learning? Are you going for the kinship? Are you going for the credentials? Maybe two of those are totally unimportant to you. Fine with me. No judgment here. I just want you asking the question. But if we're thinking about the learning, what categories of inquiry come up under that? It might be your odds of getting into a PhD program because you are so set on sucking up knowledge in a particular area that's really important to you that you might want to keep studying it for another five years afterwards. So what happens to the anthropology majors at these schools? Do any of them apply to anthropology PhD programs? Do they get in? Who's got a pipeline you know, to the, to the best anthro PhD programs? How do I figure out what those are? These are questions you can ask. Right? You can write to anthropology professors as a 17-year-old and ask. And if nobody responds to you, You've learned something very important, right? So what else do we want to know about learning? We want to know about the size of the school and the size of the classes. If you think there's a chance that sitting in a lecture hall with 300 other students for the first eight or 12 or 16 of your classes of your college career might affect how you learn, then ask the question, right? What percentage of the time are you going to be in classes that big? You should certainly ask about the teachers, if you're going to be taught by grad students half the time your first two years, you know they may be great, but you're the guinea pig, and they're not there to learn to teach. They're there to write a bang-up PhD thesis and get themselves a tenure-track job when the odds of doing that are like one in 62 billion. So you, teenagers... You're a nuisance to them more often than not. You know, grad students have gotten mad at me for saying stuff like this, but I, I, look, I, I, this is not meant to disparage them. I wish there were more tenure track jobs. And if I was them, I'd be concentrating, you know, on my career track and not on the 19 year olds. So, you know, these are all things you have to ask. And then there's a different set of questions for kinship, a different set of questions for credential, you know, and then you're off and running. I think that the problem here, though, is that people don't feel entitled to interrogate the system. And I would just ask people who are in the process of shopping and certainly people like you who are in the process of choosing, feel some sense of entitlement about more and better information. Let's get to the once you are pretty certain that you want to go to a place and you've made your, made your decision, how do you pay for it once you've agreed to the price? Are there any steps or things that people should know that are sort of outside of what we normally are accustomed to when it comes to paying for it? Well, I, I think the die is cast once you've picked a place and you've settled on a price. I, I, you know, I think the thing that I would encourage people to do, and you know, I'm in the middle of a lot of you know, hand-holding right now among friends and just readers who have dared to ask, you know, there's a lot of action between April 1st and May 1st. And increasingly, there's a lot of action after May 1st where schools start to realize that they're you know, kind of ahead of where they predicted in terms of their numbers or behind where they predicted in terms of their numbers. And you know, as things get closer to May 1st and they're worried, they may be more likely to say yes to your appeal. They might even be more likely to you know, say yes on May 5th when they said no on April 10th. And so if you're in a situation where you've got some merit aid, it never hurts to politely go back to the school and say, hey, I just want to let you know 
you know, this, if this is the student speaking, which I, I, I think it probably should be, although there's no real science on whether the appeal from the student, you know, yields a, a better result than appeal from a parent. Say, hey, um, I'm really thrilled with this. I loved your school. I'm grateful for the offer. My parents are pretty hard up right now. This is a big price to pay. I've got a sibling coming up the pike or another one who's, you know, finishing right now or whatever the truth of the matter is. Um, if you're an only kid, talk about the fact that your parents haven't or parent hasn't saved enough for retirement, which is almost certainly true. And I just want to bring you up to date on the really cool stuff I've been doing since I filled up my application. I also want to let you know that you know, X or Y school down the road, you know, who's in your athletic conference and, you know, who you compete with for students, uh, you don't say that, right? But like, you know, X, Y comparable school, um, you know, has also offered me a mission and the net price over there is going to be $3,000 less. Um, I am trying so hard to make this easier on my family. Is there any way you can help with a little bit more money? Nobody is going to resent that, appeal. And, um, you know, at any given school, uh, you know, depending on where they're at, uh, look, it's impossible to predict the odds, right? It just depends on what's going on at that school. But what I can tell you is that they expect to hear from students and they always have room in the budget in the spring to address those appeals and help way more people than you might think. So this has been an absolutely fascinating book and so useful for my family as we've been on this journey together. So glad you wrote it and perfect time for us to take advantage of folks. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out as well. But Ron, what was the thing that surprised you the most through your reporting and your writing in this book that just woke you up to the fact that things have really changed or changed to a degree that you hadn't expected? One of the things I wanted to do just personally to test myself, but also to just get out of, you know, standard New York Times, LA, San Francisco, New York, Washington territory that I traverse probably too much at the day job, right? I wanted to get to the middle of the country and I wanted to go to places that I'd never been before and schools um, that lots of people, you know, who I know in my life in Brooklyn, New York, I had never even heard of, right? And I just, you know, had a hunch that, some of these places were doing unique things and that all of them had really interesting people who had thought through these issues who were worth talking about. And so, you know, there were a few people who I'd been following on Twitter or whose work I'd read who were at this school or that school, you know, in the Midwest largely. And so I just showed up, you know, in Minnesota and Ohio and Illinois to talk to these people. And what I realized personally, right, was that I needed to stop worrying about my kids, that I needed to have way, way, way more hope about this process because there are so, so, so many schools where my daughters could go and thrive. And it doesn't matter if they go where I went or where my wife went. They are going to be fine. They're going to be fine. They're going to be better than fine. And that made me feel happy. Amen. Amen to that, folks. Tremendous book, The Price You Pay for College. Ron Lieber, the also the author of the Your Money column on the New York Times and a lot of other good books. Ron, I'm so glad you wrote this. I'm so glad we read it. And thanks so much for joining The Express. Ah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. 
It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Elon Musk and Twitter, of course. But we're going to give the socks and the credit to Sam S., who hit us up on Instagram to make sure we selected poison pill this week. Well, according to Investopedia, the term poison pill refers to a defense strategy used by a target firm to prevent or discourage a potential hostile takeover by an acquiring company. Potential targets use this tactic in order to make them look less attractive to the potential acquirer. Poison pills allow existing shareholders the right to purchase additional shares at a discount, effectively diluting the ownership interest of a new hostile party. The name comes from the poison pill spies carried around in the past to avoid being questioned by their enemies in the event they were captured. There are two types of poison pill strategies, the flip-in and the flip-over. Of the two types, the flip-in variety is more commonly followed. A flip-in poison pill strategy involves allowing the shareholders, except for the acquirer, to purchase additional shares at a discount. Though purchasing additional shares provides shareholders with instantaneous profits, the practice dilutes the value of the limited number of shares already purchased by the acquiring company. A flip-over poison pill strategy allows stockholders of the target company to purchase the shares of the acquiring company at a deeply discounted price if the hostile takeover attempt is successful. For example, a target company shareholder may gain the right to buy the stock of its acquirer at a two-for-one rate, thereby diluting the equity in the acquiring company. The acquirer may avoid going the acquirer may avoid going ahead with such acquisitions if it perceives a dilution of value post acquisition. Well, in 2012, Netflix popped a poison pill to ward off activist investor Carl Icahn. And in 2018, Papa John's Pizza enacted a poison pill to prevent founder John Schnatter from taking over the company. And as we know, Twitter just popped this poison pill to keep Elon Musk from acquiring more than 15% of the company as he tries to take it private. Good suggestion, Sean, who goes by NYC underscore beer underscore. Socks are coming to you for your next round at McSorley's. A light and a dark for me, please. We're going to let Elon Musk take us out this week. I know we've been giving him a lot of air this week, but he has shaken up the business world in a big way over the past few weeks. He's a great agitator. Here's Musk at a TED conference in Vancouver last week explaining his vision for Twitter. I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where all... So, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Um, and, you know, so one of the things that I believe Twitter should do is open source the algorithm um, and make any changes uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent so you can, anyone can see that that action has been taken. So there's, there's no sort of behind-the-scenes um, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Musk also said in the same interview that he didn't know if he would even be able to buy Twitter after all. So this whole thing may have just been another ride on Musk's magic carpet. We're going to ride out on that, and we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.